0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for the second episode of our podcast, Groundbreakers. On this podcast, we interview early stage founders and real estate investors to hear their stories of what let them have success in their career and hearing their journey from zero to one. I'm joined today by Julian Alvarez, co-founder and CEO of WizDolia. WizDolia is transforming students into super learners by bringing together cutting edge learning science with AI's advanced capabilities. Right now, they help students learn faster with AI-generated flashcards. Thanks so much for joining us, Julian. Very excited to have you on the show. So my oh, first yeah. question for you is I'd love to hear your story. What, what were you doing before Was Dolia? What's been your career journey? Like, What brought you into entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, why do the hard thing? Uh, <laughs> why take the, the path less traveled? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be on the podcast. Yeah, a brief overview on my story is... I'm um, originally from Colombia, Medellin, Colombia, in South America. Spent first four years of my life there until my parents made the crazy, bold, ambitious, risky decision to leave everything that they knew behind and move to Texas, uh, to where we're both from. This wonderful city of McAllen and the Valley. <laughs> um, Dude, that's so, rare. People be from McAllen, yeah. so I love it. Yeah, I I think you're like the only founder. I actually recently I. Two days ago, I met another founder from McAllen, but we're a rare bunch uh, from there. But uh, yeah, and um, I grew up there, and I ended up uh, going to college in Texas as well at A&M. I studied computer science. But yeah, some some important pivotal points, two important pivotal points, I'd say, are I learned how to code when I was 13, thanks to one of my dad's friends being a computer scientist very rare for a place like McAllen to like be exposed to coding so i got very lucky that my dad's friend happened to be a software engineer and you know built something shipped it 30,000 people downloaded it and i was like this is freaking crazy that you can just identify a need build something publish it to like millions of people worldwide and uh yeah it really like made me very curious about tech and entrepreneurship at large And then studied computer science in college, but I'd say the second big transformation I'll share along the journey was that when I was a sophomore in college, I went to a Tony Robbins seminar. Tony Robbins like a personal development, growth, sort of like a guru type of guy and just has so much wisdom on life. And he hosts these in-person seminars that are very intense, like four, five, six day sort of events. And at the time, like, the way I would describe it is that I, I grew up being very ambitious, but I, that ambition was very self-centered. Like I just wanted to be very wealthy for whatever reason. That's where my ambition initially gravitated towards. But I did some things, you know, learn how to code, da, 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 build some apps. But for the most part, I overdosed on video games, never really read unless I had to for school, uh, didn't eat really healthy and was pretty introverted. Uh, so I just felt very misaligned. And so when I found out about this seminar from Tony Robbins, I was like, Oh my God, this might this might be what I need. So I went and everything changed after that. It was it was pretty transformative, you know, learning about psychology, limiting beliefs, how to break them, about contribution, giving, growth, purpose, all these things. I basically was able to find a purpose and redefine a purpose that was much greater than anything I could ever be. And for the first time in my life I felt like I was finally aligned with the ambition I felt so long because that ambition was now not self-centered it was it, it had been connected to this broader purpose and vision of being able to empower myself and others to discover and manifest their infinite potential and that is really what sparked this obsession around learning and personal growth because I changed so dramatically that I was like whoa like where did this potential come from was this just like buried inside of me somehow and like out of nowhere i'm like now manifesting so much more of this potential that was hidden and it made me obsessed about figuring out what like knowing that other people probably had way more within themselves that they didn't even realize was there so led to the obsession around learning personal growth led me to also want to co-found my first startup buys, which was a glass store for factory workers in Mexico. Did that for four years, was the CTO, made a lot of mistakes. It never worked, but was my first real exposure into startups. And even though it was really hard, it was like mission impossible because we're college students, we're doing something in Mexico while we're in Texas. I was the only one that spoke Spanish. It was like, I don't know, This like kind of silly that we attempted it, but we cared so deeply. And I loved it. It taught me that I loved entrepreneurship and doing impactful things. But anyways, I did that. And then I did internships with Goldman Sachs, with LinkedIn Learning, and with the learning team at Meta. And uh, yeah, took a full-time offer from from Meta where I was there a whopping nine months until I took the quantum leap, burned my boats, and went all in on the startup life, um, which now we're building Dolia as of eight months ago. But before dolia. There was a year of four pivots of just trying to figure shit out. And, you know, we almost died in the process because, you know, finding product market fit, as we'll talk, is building something people want is uh, not simple. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of like what, what led to building Wisdolia and being very excited about this vision of um, creating super learners and creating exponential individuals that can thrive during exponential times.
0: That's an awesome story and I just want to say like your passion for learning really comes out like just by the way you talk about, you know, your experiences, building during college, even joining the learning team at Meta and like working in that division. So I think it makes complete sense that you're a founder trying to build something in that space. So I think of like founder market fit clearly has it. So that's awesome to hear. Um, I think for a lot of like wannabe founders. You know, they hear these stories of like, how do you even start? You know, how do you find an idea? Like, how did that come to you? Like, you said you've pivoted four different times. I think when you first left Meta, you, you were working on something else, as you mentioned. So can you kind of share with me that story? And what gave you that first idea that said, I'm going to leave Meta and do this full time?
1: Yeah, yeah. Great question. I mean, ideas can come from so many different places for the first idea. For, for the first idea that we explored, uh, we, we basically decided, uh, like, I was very into Web3 at the time, and there was play-to-earn games, which were basically, like, you play a game and you can earn crypto. A uh, popular one here was Axie Infinity. I was very fascinated by it, and I was like, this is cool, like, people making a living from playing a game, like, that's crazy, but what if you did the same for uh like learning learn to earn so that's kind of like where the idea came from it's kind of like going deep into a market trend and analyzing like what is cool or powerful about this but maybe adding some twist to it uh that could be that could be cool so that's where it came from the initial ideas other ideas were like simple iterations we then did like personal growth competitions they were led by insights from previous from the learn to earn so i think a lot of it is like hey, what's working about this? What do people really like? When we talk to users, what other problems do we discover that can oft- often lead to insights on deeper problems uh, that are maybe worthwhile to focus on and, you know, pivot towards? And then um, I would say that uh, WizDolia's case was very interesting because the way it happened is there was this person that tweeted saying, my dream AI product would be to take anything that I'm reading and create flashcards automatically from it. And that's we blew up. Got almost like a million views, three thousand likes. And at the time we were exploring like a similar idea in the learning space, and I was like, yo, I'm building something similar, it'll launch in two days. Over a hundred people liked it, fifty people commented, reached out, and I was like, yo, what the hell? This is like insane market validation. And and I mean that's that's a gift because to see something with so much clear validation. Is, is, is very unique because it's kind of doing the hard work already of like, yo, people want this, right? The hardest, one of the hardest things in the zero to one journey early on is finding and building something people want. And more than 90% of ideas are not going to work. So getting that validation early on and trying to validate or invalidate people's desires with their actual behaviors of using the product and then also paying for it are, are all very important stepping stones. So yeah, kind of crazy how the idea came from the
0: tweet. <laughs> no, that's, that's amazing. And I feel like having validation from the get-go is huge as a founder, to your point. The zero to one journey, you're trying to find the validation. Are you building something people want? And having that immediately available to you, I think is great. What, what made you, I guess, get to the point where you said, like, okay, this is not working, we need a pivot. Because I think founders take different periods of time to get to that decision. But it's a crucial one. And you hear so many stories of successful founders that pivot multiple times and even later stages like Series A, Series B. Like any advice you'd give to other founders that are doing that today?
1: Uh, Yeah. The classic question to pivot or not to pivot, (laughs) as Shakespeare might have framed it. Uh, It's honestly one of the hardest decisions you can make uh, at times and it's it's really hard because it's like oh my god i we worked on this for several months in some cases several years like we invested so heavily and it's kind of like if you're in a relationship for a while and then maybe it's getting a little toxic or it's not great it's kind of like the easiest thing is to just keep doing the thing you were doing stay with the relationship stay with the product so pivoting is not easy um Not easy at all. Uh, Some considerations that I think are important here are uh, like two core ones are like what are qualitative and quantitative measures? You should always take both into consideration. So quantitative is like, you know, what is um, uh, usage top of funnel? Like how many people are coming in? Is there any word of mouth? uh, How much are people using this? What does the retention look like? Uh, One of the most important metrics, too, is like money, because maybe people are willing to use it, but are they willing to pay? It doesn't matter how much people like your product and are using it. If they're not willing to pay, you don't have a business. So that's often one of the riskiest assumptions that you have to try to validate as soon as possible. Um, and, And some people are pretty reluctant. We were reluctant to charge early on, but we did so, and it was a great decision. But uh, what else? There's qualitative things like talk to people, like if you ask them open-endedly uh, what challenges, problems they have related to whatever you're building in. And by the way, doing user interviews is well. Doing them well is so important. Uh, so highly recommend this book called The Mom Test that literally teaches you the fundamental ideas of how to do good interviews. But yeah, it's getting insights, right? How do they feel about it? Like what problem is this solving for it? Uh, why isn't it solving the problem if it's not? You can even ask them questions like, Hey, how would you feel if this product didn't exist? Would you be like, "Uh, Oh man, that sucks, but like, whatever, or not really care? Or are you like, Wait, what the fuck? No, don't shut it down. Like, I love this. It's like, Oh, wow, okay. Right. So you can kind of get like a level of feeling of how people are feeling about it. So there's those measures, but then there's also like, sometimes you pivot not because it's not working, but rather because you maybe identify a better 10x opportunity that has a lot more validation or a lot bigger market or whatever it is. So pivoting isn't you, you gotta realize that whatever you decide to work on, you're paying the opportunity cost of not working on anything else. So uh if you just identify a much better opportunity that you feel like better aligned with as a founder as well, then that's that's also a valid reason to pivot. Of course, you don't wanna be pivoting all the time and be stuck in what people call pivot hell, but yeah, pretty important. Uh, Last consideration I'll mention is there's a lot of bias in working on something for some time where you're like, oh, I'm just going to keep going at it because, you know, we've already built whatever. I I think a really great question to ask yourself to deal with um, uh, the sunk cost biases, it's called a sunk cost bias, is just ask yourself, if I was to restart in building this idea today. I've spent six months of it. If I was going to restart knowing what I know now and how it's gone so far, would I restart doing this thing again? And if the answer is no, then you should probably pivot and go away. Because you're probably holding on to that thing. The idea and again it could be a relationship, same idea. Probably holding on to that thing because it's comfortable, because it's easy. Uh so yeah. Ultimately the biggest bet we made was we built in social app for six months didn't really work, never got the traction we wanted. And we are we had the idea of like, oh, if we just keep improving it and making it better, eventually people will like it and it'll grow. But if your thing isn't working from the beginning, it's fairly unlikely that some iteration of the current idea is going to end up working. Don't delude yourself. Uh, and for us, fortunately, the limited runway that we have and seeing that our money was running out was the forcing function to make sure that we actually pivot it. Because if we would have raised like a million or two million dollars, we might have been like, cool, let's just keep investing. We have time. Like we'll figure it out. And maybe we might have figured it out, but if something's not working from the beginning, that's that's a very dangerous thing you gotta be looking for.
0: Yeah, and not only that, like team morale starts to go down too. So it's not even just are we finding product market fit and is it working? It's like do you even want to keep working on this and how does the entire team feel about what you're still moving towards. So yeah. that's amazing advice. And I think, like, you hit on a lot of points founders should really resonate with. Like, if I'm six months into a project and I would do it again, like, that's so you know you have something that is worth continuously working on versus pivoting and trying to do something else. I really like your philosophy on just how you're, you're building your company today. Like, I think you're very open about it. You post a lot on LinkedIn. Like, you share your growth story. And I think that's amazing as another like founder, like I'm always super happy when I see like, oh, Julian's having success and things are working. So can you share like what made you decide to build publicly? Do you feel like that's helped? I know a lot of founders always debate, should I build in the open or should I build in stealth mode? Like what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's so important to build in public because uh, there's so many benefits um, and so many important things. One, if you're get into this habit of constantly posting, you're reflecting on your experiences and what's working. And it doesn't matter if zero people view it. That reflection has a lot of value in capturing your lessons uh, and ideas and being just more introspective and analytical. So, of course, you don't need to post them publicly. You can reflect on your own, but there is this sort of social accountability of like uh, posting publicly. And, of course, you also get the added benefit of getting other people's thoughts, perspectives, and they may weigh in, which helps diversify your perspective with just your own thinking. So there's that part. There's the other part of like, for me, um, when I, th- this is like a meta point, but when I think about like the sort of impact I want to have in the world, I don't just want to build companies and products. Uh, I also want to be able to be a thought leader and have an impact with my ideas and perspectives and mindsets. And so, and and the reason I, I believe that, one reason is because I think there's some problems that cannot be solved with products or companies. There's some problems that are purely like just knowledge or philosophy or mindset or whatever it is. Uh, Sure. Products may facilitate that, but the knowledge is still what's being transmitted at the end of the day. So I value highly that idea of being a thought leader and being able to, uh, I don't know, it's also very impactful if you can share like ideas and and stories and challenges or things that work didn't work with others it's it's incredibly valuable and and people also feel grateful and gives you more reputation it makes you more reputable so yeah it works a lot like for you if like you see my posts, it's like that like it pings you it reminds you that I exist and it's like some form of being able to deliver value uh to you and then like perhaps you are more likely to want to reciprocate in some ways just naturally not because you have to just because like oh i learned this interesting thing from julian like cool he knows his stuff maybe like um it, it reminds me of him so i'm like oh wow i saw julian's post uh oh that reminds me i met with this ai or air tech founder last week i think it'd be cool for them to connect or maybe it might n- have never occurred to you if you wouldn't have seen a post from me so anyways there's there's all these things the last thing i'd mention is that Building your audience, building like a reputation and growing um, your personal brand is so important because anything you do benefits from that. If tomorrow I launch a different product um, or, or do anything else, anything that I do build or ship is going to get more eyeballs and more attention, which again, from the zero to one journey of trying to get your first hundred, first thousand users if you have fifty, hundred, thousand followers, that problem is near pretty much always solved. Anytime you like put something out there, so I value that a lot too.
0: No, that's awesome. I think the re- reciprocating value piece so important. Like you're absolutely right. Seeing that post made me think of you and be like, oh, we should have Julian on our podcast and see if he <laughs> could share some of his knowledge. So directly translated into a tangible result. So no, that's awesome. Um yeah. And kind of going off of that, like, I think I saw that you recently did like a TikTok influencer post and saw that that had success for you guys. We've been thinking about doing something like that for what we're building at Homebase. Would love to just get your perspective because I think a lot of founders think through like TikTok's hot right now. People are wondering how do you market yourself on it? Should you work with influencers? Like, how did you go about doing that? And what were some of the direct results from that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I mean, when it comes to marketing and growth, um, you just want to consider what all your options are and identify the, the trade-offs, like what are the good things and bad things about certain channels or strategies. So there's things like influencer marketing, paid ads, there's like finding relevant communities on Discord, Reddit, Facebook groups, whatever it is, posting on there. Um, there's There's so many strategies. There's even in-person guerrilla tactics, whatever. So I think in getting started, it's kind of like take take a couple of minutes or an hour to like map out what are all the different potential channels and strategies we can use. Try to identify what are the pros and cons and also where are you, right? If you don't have a lot of money or, or any money, then you probably can't do paid ads or influencer marketing, for example, because those are paid channels for growth. Uh, of course, if you don't have money, there's these other options you can do where you can be a lot more scrappy. Um, so, yeah, that's that would be like my first generic advice of like mapping things out for, for influencer marketing specifically, the benefits of it are that you can target a niche influencer for us. We realize that med students are like best niche because they have the highest usage for AI generated flashcards and also are eight to nine times more willing to convert from free to paid than the average student. So huge willingness to pay huge pain point, huge users so great let's go and find influencers that are specifically med students because they're going to have the audiences uh, audience of like the most med students uh so that's exactly what we did uh recently and we had yeah one post go viral this med student influencer posted on tiktok specifically and the post got over 800,000 views and yeah like 10x our weekly revenue that week it like Tripled our MRR. It made us like 15, 20 K in revenue just from a single post. So it was pretty, pretty crazy. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the benefit you can get with, uh, content and the short form content on things like TikTok. Uh, so, yeah, I can speak more to it, but yeah, those are the, the downsides of influencer marketing, though, are that it's harder to measure and it's nonlinear. You may put out five posts and none of them work. Um, but then the sixth or seventh one ends up blowing up. So it's harder. It's not good in the sense that it's less predictable. So yeah, just got to weigh it out with different options and experiment with what you think are maybe the two to three top channels that might work best for what you're doing. And then whatever works best, double down on that and focus most of your efforts on what's working best. And then you can invest maybe 20% of effort to continue to experiment other strategies and channels.
0: That's amazing. Um well- 800,000 views is no joke either, that's that's amazing. Um, how do you go about finding that particular influencer? Like, did you work with someone? Did you just scour TikTok until you found them and reached out personally? Like, what, what do you recommend?
1: Yeah, the simple strategy we used there was, uh, I think it was, my co-founder did this, but I think it was like, look up med students on TikTok, try to find like a popular account. But once you find one good one, you can go to the post that they're making, see what hashtags they're using, because there's probably like med student specific hashtags, for example. So there's one, I think, for example, like med TikTok or something like that, that maybe we might have not guessed. But then we look at that and then we can see which other top influencers are using those very niche hashtags so that we can then find, you know, those other influencers. So that's kind of a scrappy way to do it. Uh, there's also websites like Modash where you can where it's like a search engine for influencers. Uh so yeah, those are maybe like two main ways that you can use to find people.
0: That's awesome. No, thanks for sharing. Um I guess switching gears a little bit and going back to like reflecting on your entire experience so far being a founder. Like I I know you've been a founder now for about a year and a half full time. And that can feel like eternity when you're in the founder (laughs) stage, especially in the early stage. So yeah. like, I guess looking back to yourself when you are first leaving Meta, all-starry-eyed, like what advice would you give yourself? And what are some of the biggest learnings you've had along that journey so far?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, great question. I mean, yeah, and, and to emphasize your point, I think the first year of the startup with like four pivots, it literally felt like a whole life uh, lived in a year. Because <laughs> it's like, holy shit, we all of that happened in a year? Kind of crazy. Uh, yeah, startups can be very exponential in that way. But yeah, the things I wish I knew when I first became a startup founder, and this is of course based on many of the mistakes that we've made. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes we made is, uh, well, firstly, to give a little more context, when I left Meta, I left before we raised any money, which was a fairly risky thing to do because only had like a few months of runway of like our own money. But I had a lot of confidence that I had the network to raise money. And felt that I could do it. Um, fortunately, I was somewhat right. <laughs> Managed to raise like over 200K. It wasn't as much as we wanted. The market like had crashed shortly after that. But anyways, raised 200K, da da But the context for the, the... The reason I mentioned this context is because when... Uh, the biggest bet we made that I mentioned briefly, which was a social app on based on personal growth for you to like, you know, post your ho- hobbies, habits... Things that you're learning and growing. Uh, We invested six months into that without it really working. Not only did we invest uh, that much time, we also hired an extra engineer and a marketing agency. Our burn rate was like 27K uh, a month, which is insane. You're spending 27K a month for something that hasn't even shown signs of product market fit. That's like the equivalent of trying to throw gasoline on a fire that's not lit like what the fuck it's not going to do anything you're just like wasting gas fluid (laughs) basically so that was the key lesson i learned like don't throw it's very obvious in retrospect but don't spend all this money or don't try to uh, throw gasoline on the fire until you spark the flame spark the flame and then you can like start to add a little bit of fire uh, or gasoline onto the flame to amplify things So that was really dumb. I I wish I knew that early on. Um, What else? Uh, One other very important philosophy that I communicated a little bit is it goes like this. More than 90% of ideas aren't going to work. Most things don't work. Like there's very, very, very few ideas that actually work because there's very little things that people actually want. There's a whole like could go on off like why do people like why is it so hard for people to want things I mean there's just limited time but anyways uh, it's an interesting question but anyways most things are not going to work so if more than 90% of ideas don't work that inherently means that whatever idea you're working on right now it's more than likely not going to work so don't be attached to it like uh, one, one mistake I made and this was a very interesting learning was I'm naturally a very optimistic person. And I think as a founder, you kind of have to be like, it's so freaking hard that if you don't have some level of optimism, you're just going to be depressed because shit's hard. But what I realized is that it's actually kind of dangerous to be optimistic about your idea because you're being optimistic about something that has less than 10% chance of working. Um, So if that's the case, then What I learned is don't be optimistic about the idea. Be optimistic about yourself and your ability to figure shit out and your team, but be very skeptical of the idea. Uh, So be very clear of like, hey, what are the underlying assumptions and hypotheses on which our product is built? Um, And how can we validate and invalidate those assumptions as quickly as possible? Rather than working to try to prove that the idea is good, you should be trying to prove that the idea is actually not good as early as possible. So I think that's a very important operating philosophy. And because of that, after we the six months of this, we're like, you know what? Fuck this. We're going to do like one to two week experiments. Like if we don't get enough signal in a week or two, going on to the next thing. So we like generated a ton of ideas, kind of created like priorities and just started going one after the other we did like a sort of gratitude sharing thing two-week experiment didn't work went on to another thing that we were building and we were about to ship it but then we saw the tweet so it didn't take too long before we found something that worked but we were ready to like keep shipping things every every week or two and really be ruthless about getting validation early on and deciding to pivot if it didn't work
0: that's awesome i think the experimentation piece is critical um i think we do that a lot at Homebase. Like we take 2 week sprints and we've been exploring a lot of different areas that we could theoretically like explore and like see if there's any sort of customer validation in. And then if there's not, you just scrap that, move on to something else adjacent. So I love that philosophy. Um I think something that first time founders definitely struggle with like you're attached to an idea, you think like I'm the only one that can execute on it, so I'm going to do it but being willing to say like it's actually the team and me that dictate whether it's going to work or not and I should be bullish on myself and so willing to you know switch different ideas and experiment i think is crucial to your point yeah so i guess like you're starting to see success now with Wistolia like would love to hear more of like where you see the future going what does a future roadmap look like like you found an experiment that's working what are you doing to invalidate the idea as you mentioned and what keeps you really excited about where you're moving forward?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll actually um, start from the very top vision level and work my way down to like where we are now. Uh, so I'd say at, at, a, at a very high level, what we're doing at Wizdolia is that we want our, our bold like moonshot and mission is to create exponential individuals that can thrive during exponential times. Right. Basically, we live in this super fast moving world that's only moving faster and faster. And There's a lot of things that are uncertain about the future, but your ability to learn and adapt is going to be increasingly important. This is going to be a future-proof skill that is going to be really important to make sure you can thrive during fast-changing times. Now, breaking down exponential individual, I kind of think of it in three main pillars. Uh, An exponential individual is a learner, thinker, and doer. They're, They're super learners that can retain and understand anything at least 10 times better and faster than they're able to today. They're exceptional thinkers that are curious, uh, creative, um, critical thinkers and exceptional problem solvers. And finally, they're doers. Right. They take action because knowledge is not power. It's potential power. What makes something actually powerful is to take action upon it. Uh, And it's it's a huge problem, too. Right. We all have the best intentions to we read a book. We're like, oh, wow, amazing. I'm going to make all these changes. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like actually doing it is a whole different story. So that's a big question, right? How do we create these exponential individuals that are exceptional learner thinkers and doers? And specifically right now, we're focused on learning how to create super learners. And we're doing that specifically for students and more specifically for med students, as I've alluded to. And so right now, like where we are and what the next few months looks like is we're kind of in this stage where uh, we've gotten a ton of feedback and basically the next month is really clear. Like build some core, very basic features, like nothing like crazy or 10X. Like cool, be able to add a card, edit a card, have multi-level decks that you can save cards to, uh, etc. Very simple stuff like that. But then after that, uh the very fun and interesting thing is that really what we're doing is that we're taking the latest learning science of how people learn effectively, which there's been a lot of cutting edge research in the last two decades that hasn't found itself its way into consumer products and now we're leveraging ai's advanced capabilities as well to to basically merge these two worlds together. so then a month or two from now is really where we get into this more exploratory space of maybe like lower confidence uh things that we're not sure how well they would work but if they do work they could be pretty exponential. so yeah that's kind of how we're thinking about things and where we're at.
0: No that's awesome. I guess my last question for you like you mentioned ai that's what you're building in. It has all the hype right now. As an early stage founder, like building in the space, you think it's warranted? You think there's too much noise? Like, have you gotten tired of hearing AI? Like, tell me what your thoughts are there.
1: Yeah, it's a tough one because, uh, yeah, there's a ton of hype. But with all the hype, the question is always, is it warranted? And when you're in the midst of the hype, it's hard to be objective uh, and not be biased because same thing happened with Web3 and people thought it was warranted and I guess it turned out not to be. Um, I don't know. I think there's maybe a, a a bit too much hype, but I don't think it's uh, unwarranted because like AI's capabilities, as well as like how much it can be used in practical ways is just ridiculous. It's probably one of the technologies that can be most ubiquitously applied to different areas. And and uh be very practical from like the beginning and, and easy to interact with and whatnot. So yeah, it's uh there's a lot of hype, but I think there's good reason behind the hype. But regardless, like what you have to watch out for specifically as a founder is because there's this AI hype and people are curious and interested in AI tools and whatnot, you're probably gonna get a lot of people that come and are very interested about like, oh let me check it out. It's AI, super cool. But many ai tools tend to suffer from poor retention right like people come a lot of people come because it's cool it's like badass but are people actually staying are they coming back and if they're not doing that then you're not building something long-term sustainable so that that's one of the biggest challenges with ai apps so so don't let the top of funnel like wow look at all these people coming in don't let that fool you uh like that's that's good like that's pretty important but if you have poor retention or people aren't coming back or maybe they're not willing to pay, who cares what your top of funnel is? That That's not what matters. That turns into a vanity metric in contrast to retention and monetization.
0: No, love that. Thanks for sharing. Now, that's honestly all the questions I have for Luke, Leon. Thanks so much for coming on to Groundbreakers and sharing your story. Any closing remarks you want to share? Like if people want to learn more about Wizdolia or learn more about you, where should they go?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, feel free to um, uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm infinite Julian Zero. You can look up uh, Julian Alvarez on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, you can also learn more about me at my personal site, julian.ai. Yes, that's right. I'm an AI.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the second episode of Groundbreakers. We drop episodes every Tuesday morning. Can't wait to share with you who our next guest is going to be. Someone as amazing as Julian. So thanks so much.